The Jovanovich Lecture was set up in the 1970s to honor William Jovanovich, the well-known publisher of, and, uh, and, and operator of Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. And uh, it was founded by a friend of his who was a top executive at that publishing firm, Paul Brandewine, who was not only a senior executive at Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, but also a longtime teacher in the summer school programs here at the college for about a 25-year period. This year, the Jovanovich Lecture is Professor of History James M. McPherson. Professor McPherson taught at Princeton University in the Department of History for 42, 43 years, retiring only about three years ago. He was honored by serving as president of the American Historical Association five years ago. He has won just about every honor and award a historian can earn, including the Pulitzer Prize, the Guggenheim Fellowship, and just recently this past month, the prestigious Gettysburg College Lincoln Prize that he will be awarded actually next Tuesday in, at a big dinner in New York. Uh, he, he is honored time and time again for his works on the Civil War and on Abraham Lincoln, two of, two of those books on Lincoln having been published this year. We have, thanks to the Colorado College Bookstore, a table up there with I think a few dozen copies of, uh, of four of his more noted books and I think he'd be willing to sign a few copies if uh, people linger after his talk. Would you please give a warm Colorado College welcome to an acclaimed and very consequential historian, James M. McPherson. Well, thanks very much for that introduction and for your warm welcome. Uh, warmer than the weather outside, at any rate. Uh, I've uh, already participated in a seminar with uh, some of Tom's students in the political science department and have had a good time exchanging ideas about Abraham Lincoln and presidential leadership, wartime leadership. And I look forward to the question and answer session after my lecture this evening. Uh, because I always find those the most stimulating part of one of these events. And it, the feedback that I get from audiences uh, helps to formulate my own thinking on these questions as I move forward and continue to be interested in uh, the kinds of things I talk and write about. When the American Civil War began with a Confederate attack on Fort Sumter, the United States president, Abraham Lincoln was far less prepared for the task of commander-in-chief than was his southern adversary. Jefferson Davis had graduated from West Point. He had commanded a regiment that fought courageously in the Mexican War and had served as an outstanding Secretary of War in the Franklin Pierce administration in the 1850s. While Lincoln's only military experience had come back in 1832, when for several weeks he was captain of a militia unit that saw no action in the Black Hawk War. During Lincoln's one term in Congress in 1848, he made a speech on the floor of the House mocking his own military career. Did you know I'm a military hero? He said. I fought, bled, and came away after charges upon the wild onions and a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes. So 
when President Abraham Lincoln called state militia into federal service on April 15, 1861 to put down what he called combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, he faced a steep learning, learning curve as commander-in-chief. He worked hard at that task. His experience as a largely self-taught lawyer with a keen analytical mind who had once mastered Euclidean geometry on his own for mental exercise enabled him to learn on the job. He read and absorbed works on military history and strategy. He observed the successes and failures of his own and the enemy's military commanders and drew apt conclusions. He made mistakes and learned from them. He applied his large quotient of common sense to slice through the obfuscations of military subordinates. By 1862, his grasp of strategy and operations was firm enough almost to justify the overstated but not entirely wrong conclusion of historian T. Harry Williams, who back in 1952 wrote a, a book that has become something of a classic in the field called Lincoln and His Generals. Williams wrote, Lincoln stands out as a great war president, probably the greatest in our history, and a great natural strategist, a better one than any of his generals. The one thing in that quotation I might disagree with is the reference to Lincoln as a great natural strategist. I don't think that was true. He had to work hard uh, at learning about strategy and, and, and leadership. As commander-in-chief in time of war, a president performs or oversees three and possibly four, and in Lincoln's case, four, functions in a diminishing import, or diminishing uh, order of, of, of uh, direct activity. First, policy. Second, national strategy. Third, military strategy. And then finally, in Lincoln's case, uh, operations. Neither Lincoln nor anyone else defined these functions in a systematic way during the Civil War. If they had, their definitions might have sounded something like this. Policy refers to war aims, the political goals of the nation in time of war. National strategy refers to mobilization of the political, economic, diplomatic, and psychological, as well as the military resources of the nation to achieve those war aims. Military strategy, probably the most obvious of them, refers to plans for the employment of armed forces to win victories that will further the political goals. Operations refers to the actual organization, logistics, and movements of armies in particular campaigns to carry out the purposes of military strategy. And what I want to do this evening is to analyze Lincoln's performance in these four categories. First, as president of the nation and leader of his party, as well as commander-in-chief, Lincoln was principally responsible for shaping, de defining, articulating national policy. From first to last, that policy was preservation of the United States as one nation, indivisible, and as a republic based on majority rule, the majority rule that had elected Lincoln as president but had also provoked initially seven southern slave states to secede. In May 1861, when the war was about a month old, Lincoln explained that 
The central idea pervading this struggle is the necessity that is upon us of proving that popular government is not an absurdity. We must settle this question now whether in a free government the minority have the right to break up the government whenever they choose. On another occasion, Lincoln defined secession as what he called the essence of anarchy. Because if one state may secede at will, so may any other until there is no government and no nation. In the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln made his most eloquent statement of policy. The war was a test whether the nation conceived in 1776 might live or would perish from the earth. This issue of national sovereignty over a union of all the states was non-negotiable. No compromise between a sovereign United States and a separately sovereign Confederate States was possible. This issue, Lincoln said in 1864, is distinct, simple, and inflexible. It is an issue which can only be tried by war and decided by victory. The next level of Lincoln's duties as commander-in-chief was to mobilize the means to achieve that policy by winning the war. The president, of course, shared with Congress and key cabinet members the tasks of raising, organizing, and sustaining an army and navy, preventing foreign intervention in the conflict, maintaining public support for the war. But no matter how much this national strategy required maximum effort at all levels of government and society. The ultimate responsibility was the president's in his dual roles as head of government and commander-in-chief. And this responsibility was as much a political as a military one, especially in a civil war whose origins lay in an internal political conflict and had been precipitated by political decisions. Although Lincoln never read the work of the Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz, especially in his famous treatise Vom Kriege on war, Lincoln's actions were a consummate expression of Clausewitz's central argument, which in an English translation reads like this. The political objective is the goal, war is the means of reaching it, and means can never be considered in isolation from their purpose. Therefore, it is clear that war should never be thought of as something autonomous, but always as an instrument of policy. Some professional military men tended to think of war as something autonomous and deplored the intrusion of political considerations into military matters. Take the notable and many might say notorious example of what were called political generals. Lincoln appointed numerous prominent politicians with little or no military experience or training to the rank of brigadier or major general. Some of them received these appointments so early in the war that by seniority they subsequently outranked professional West Point educated officers. Lincoln also import, uh, commissioned important ethnic leaders as generals with little regard to their military merits. Some of these political and ethnic generals proved to be incompetent on the battlefield. And as one of the consummate professionals, 
Henry W. Halleck, who was general-in-chief during part of the war and who disliked the uh, political generals, put it, It seems but little better than murder to give important commands to such men as Nathaniel Banks, Benjamin Butler, John McClernand, and Lew Wallace. But, he went on, sighing, it seems impossible to prevent it. Historians who likewise deplore the abundance or what they consider to be the abundance of political generals sometimes cite an anecdote to mock the whole process. One day in 1862, so the story goes, Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton were going over a list of colonels for promotion to Brigadier General. Coming to the name of Alexander Schimmelfennig, the president said, there's got to be something done unquestionably in the interest of the Dutch, that meant Germans, Deutsch, and to that end I want Schimmelfennig appointed. Stanton protested that there were better qualified German-Americans. No matter about that, Lincoln said, his name will make up for any difference there may be. <laughs> Some of you may be aware General Schimmelfennig is remembered today mainly for hiding three days in the woodshed next to a pig pen to escape capture by the Confederates at Gettysburg. Other political generals are also remembered more for their military defeats or supposed blunders than for any positive achievements. Nathaniel Banks for the Red River Campaign and other defeats, John C. Fremont for the mess he made of affairs in Missouri and in Western Virginia, Daniel Sickles for endangering the Army of the Potomac and losing his leg by moving out to the Peach Orchard at Gettysburg, Benjamin Butler for alleged corruption in New Orleans and for botching the first attack on Fort Fisher, and so on and on. Often forgotten in this indictment are the excellent military records of several political generals, Mention uh, John A. Logan and Francis P. Blair of Illinois and Missouri. It's just two examples. Both of them became very good corps commanders in William T. Sherman's army. And, of course, some West Pointers, notably Ulysses S. Grant and William T. Sherman, might have languished in obscurity if it had not been for the, official, for the initial sponsorship of Grant by Congressman Elihu B. Washburn and of Sherman by his brother John, the United States Senator from Illinois. But even if all political generals, or generals in whose appointments politics had played a part, turned out to have had mediocre military records, that process would still have had a positive impact on national strategy. The main purpose of commissioning prominent political and ethnic leaders was to mobilize their constituencies for this huge volunteer war effort. The United States Army on the eve of the Civil War in a nation of 32 million people consisted of about 16,000 men, most of them scattered across thousands of miles of frontier in small units. By April 1862, when the war was just a year old, the Volunteer Union Army, not even mentioning the Confederate, consisted of 637,000 men. That mass mobilization, which was really a mobilization from the bottom up, could not have taken place without an enormous effort by local and state politicians as well as by prominent ethnic leaders. In New York City, for example, the Tammany Democrat Daniel Sickles raised a brigade and thereby earned a commission as Brigadier General. The Irish-born Thomas Maher helped raise the famous Irish Brigade. The German-American leader Karl Schurz 
helped raise several German regiments and eventually became a major general. Northern state governors, nearly all Republicans, played an essential part in raising and organizing volunteer regiments and claimed brigadier generalships for their political allies in return. At the same time, Lincoln needed the allegiance of prominent Democrats, like John McClernand and John Logan in southern Illinois, for example, where support for the war initially was questionable. And as even the uh, Republican newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, which rarely had anything good to say about Democrats, acknowledged in September 1861, speaking of these two men, McClernand and Logan, they have labored night and day to instruct their fellow citizens in the true nature of the contest and to organize their aroused feelings into effective military strength. They have succeeded nobly. And both became eventually major generals, and Logan, as I mentioned, a good one. And of course, prominent Republicans could not be ignored. Lincoln's party supplied most of the energy and manpower for the war effort. John C. Fremont, who had been the first Republican candidate for president in 1856, and Nathaniel P. Banks, former Speaker of the House and Governor of Massachusetts, were made major generals early in the war. By the second year of the war, the need for politically motivated commissions to mobilize support, reward support, cement allegiances, had declined. Performance in action became the principal determinant for promotion, though, as you might well imagine, politics could never be completely absent from that process. Schimmel Fennig, for example, was promoted to Brigadier General in November 1862, uh, while Karl Schurz and Julius Stahel were promoted to Major General in January 1863, all in the name of rewarding, as Lincoln put it, our sincere friends in the German-American community. Nevertheless, merit, rather than politics, gradually took over as the primary criterion for promotion. The national strategy of mobilizing political support for the war through military patronage had largely served its purpose. And as one historian of that process has written, the political general's reputation for battlefield defeats is certainly accurate for many in this group, but this orthodox caricature neglects their vital contribution in rallying support for the war and convincing the people to join the mass citizen army as volunteers. And Lincoln would certainly have agreed with that appraisal. That was his purpose in doing it in the first place. Some of those higher ranking political generals helped to shape military strategy and thus straddled the boundary between national and military strategy. And I'll get to the question of military strategy in a few moments. But first, another important issue that began as a question of national strategy eventually crossed the boundary in the other direction to become policy as well. That was the issue of slavery and emancipation. During the first year of the war, one of Lincoln's top priorities was to keep border state, border slave state, unionists and northern anti-abolitionist Democrats in his war coalition. The issue of restoring the union united these groups with the Republican Party the issue of slavery and especially emancipation badly, sharply divided them. 
Lincoln feared with good reason that the balance in three important border slave states might tip to the Confederacy if his administration took premature steps toward emancipation. When General Fremont issued a military order freeing the slaves of Confederate supporters in Missouri in August 1861, Lincoln revoked it in order to quell an outcry from the border states and Northern Democrats. To have sustained Fremont's order, Lincoln believed, would, as he put it, alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin our rather fair prospect for Kentucky. I think that to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Kentucky gone, we cannot hold Missouri, nor is, I think, Maryland. These all against us, and the job in our hands is too large for us. We would as well consent to separation at once, including the surrender of this capital. That was in September, 1861. But during the next nine months or so, the thrust of national strategy on this question began to shift away by fits and starts from this policy of conciliating the border states and anti-emancipation Democrats on the slavery issue. During that time, the anti-slavery Republican constituency grew louder and more demanding. The argument that what Republicans called the slave power had brought on the war and that reunion with slavery still part of the United States would only sow the seeds of another war in the future, these arguments became more insistent. The evidence that slave labor sustained the Confederate economy and the logistics of Confederate armies grew stronger. Counteroffensives by southern armies in the summer of 1862 wiped out many of the Union gains of the previous winter and spring. Many Northerners in this situation, now including Lincoln, became convinced that bolder steps on this issue were necessary. To win the war over an enemy fighting for and sustained by slavery, the argument went, the North must strike against slavery. So in July 1862, Lincoln decided on a major change in national strategy, an historic change. Instead of deferring to the border states and northern Democrats, he would activate the dynamism of the northern anti-slavery majority that had elected him and mobilize the potential of black manpower by issuing a proclamation of freedom for slaves in rebellious states. In an historic cabinet meeting on July 22, 1862, recorded in his diary by Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, Lincoln told cabinet members, decisive and extreme measures must be adopted. Emancipation is a military necessity absolutely necessary to the preservation of the Union. We must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. The slaves are undeniably an element of strength to those who have their service and we must decide whether that element should be with us or against us. We want the army to strike more vigorous blows. The administration must set the army an example and strike at the heart of the rebellion, slavery. After a two-month wait for a Union military victory to give an emancipation edict credibility as a positive war measure instead of a desperate appeal for a slave uprising, Lincoln issued a preliminary proclamation five days after the limited Union victory in the Battle of Antietam. 
This proclamation, this warning proclamation of September 22nd, 1862, warned that on January 1st, 1863, the president would invoke his war powers as commander-in-chief to seize enemy property, in this case slaves, by proclaiming emancipation in all states or parts of states still then in rebellion. January 1st came, the rebellion, of course, still raged, and Lincoln issued his historic proclamation. Emancipation thus became a crucial part of the North's national strategy by trying to convert this Confederate resource of slave labor into a Union advantage. But this step opened up a potential inconsistency between national strategy and policy. The Emancipation Proclamation might free many slaves if northern armies could conquer the states to which it applied. But what about the states that, to which it did not apply? The four border states plus the new state of West Virginia plus portions of the Confederacy already occupied and therefore not at war with the United States. It was an emergency measure, a war powers major that would no longer have any validity in peacetime. Could the North fight a war using a strategy of emancipation to restore a union in which slavery might still exist and to uphold a constitution that still sanctioned bondage? This inconsistency was resolved during the last two years of the war when the abolition of slavery evolved from a means of winning the war to a war aim, that is from national strategy to national policy. Lincoln was re-elected in 1864 on a platform calling not only for unconditional surrender of the Confederacy, but also for a constitutional amendment, the 13th Amendment, to abolish slavery everywhere and forever. Lincoln also underwent a shift from a national strategy initially of opposing the recruitment of black soldiers to fight for the Union to one of vigorous support for that policy, for that action. The idea of putting arms in the hands of black men provoked even greater hostility among northern Democrats and border state unionists than did emancipation itself. In August 1862, Lincoln told delegates from Indiana who offered to raise two black regiments that the nation cannot afford to lose Kentucky at this crisis. He's still worried about Kentucky. And that to arm the Negroes would turn 50,000 bayonets from the loyal border states against us that were for us. By 50,000 bayonets, he meant the number of white soldiers from those border states as fighting for the Union at that time. But just three weeks later, the President quietly authorized the War Department to begin organizing black regiments on the South Carolina, sea, South Carolina and Georgia Sea Islands, areas that had been occupied by the Union since early in the war and where many slaves had been liberated. Then came the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863, which openly endorsed the recruitment of black soldiers and sailors. And then by March 1863, Lincoln told his military governor of occupied Tennessee that the colored population is the great available and yet unavailed of force for restoring the Union. The bare sight of 50,000 armed and drilled black soldiers on the banks of the Mississippi now he's not worried about those 50,000 white bayonets, he's talking about recruiting 50,000 black soldiers, would end the rebellion at once. And who doubts that we can present that site if we but take hold in earnest? 
That prediction proved a bit over-optimistic, that is 50,000 entering the rebellion at once. Nevertheless, in August 1863, after black regiments had proved their worth at Fort Wagner and elsewhere, Lincoln told opponents of their employment, and there still were many opponents, bitter opponents in the North, told them that in the future there will be some black men who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye and well-poised bayonet they have helped mankind on to this great consummation. While I fear there will be some white ones unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech they have strove to hinder it. A year later, in August 1864, now with more than 100,000 black men under arms, Lincoln considered their contribution essential to victory. Without those soldiers, he said, we cannot longer maintain the contest. Abandon all the posts now possessed by black men and we would be compelled to abandon the war in three weeks. Lincoln's dominant role in determining policy and national strategy, the two themes that I've been talking about so far, is scarcely surprising. But he also took a more active, hands-on part in shaping military strategy than presidents have done in any other American war. That was not necessarily by choice. Lincoln's lack of military training inclined him at first to defer to General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, America's most celebrated soldier since George Washington. But Scott's age, his poor health, his lack of energy, his desire to retire placed a greater burden on the president than he had anticipated. Lincoln was also disillusioned by Scott's advice back in March 1861 to yield both Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens, the only two places in the Confederate states, the, the seceded states held by uh, Union forces, and by the seemingly passive strategy of what was called the Anaconda Plan that Scott had come up with, mainly just a blockade uh, to uh, seal off the South from the rest of the world and wait for it to collapse. Scott did retire in November 1861, but his successors as generals-in-chief, first General George B. McClellan and then Henry W. Halleck, proved to be even greater disappointments to Lincoln in that capacity. Nor did several of his army field commanders, Don Carlos Buell, John Pope, Ambrose Burnside, Joseph Hooker, William S. Rosecrans, and, of course, George B. McClellan, measure up to initial expectations. When Ulysses S. Grant became General-in-Chief in March 1864, Lincoln told him, according to Grant's memoirs, that Grant is, is paraphrasing Lincoln's words, that he had never professed to be a military man or to know how campaigns should be conducted and never wanted to interfere in them, but that procrastination on the part of commanders had compelled him to take a more active part. Grant's account here doesn't ring entirely true. By that time, March 1864, Lincoln had definite ideas on how campaigns should be conducted. But it is certain that procrastination, to use the word that Grant put in Lincoln's mouth, especially by McClellan and Buell, caused Lincoln to become, in effect, his own general-in-chief as well as commander-in-chief in several key campaigns. 
We don't have time to discuss all of those campaigns this evening. Instead, I'll focus on a few key facets of Lincoln's evolving military strategy. The first of those facets was Lincoln's emphasis on what military analysts call concentration in time to counteract the Confederacy's ability to use interior lines to, con to uh, concentrate in space. Well, what does that mean? Uh, in your mind's eye, envisage the geography of the United States and the Confederate States. The Confederate States of America were surrounded on the north and the west by the United States and on the south by Mexico, then the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean, south and east. To invade and conquer the Confederacy, Union forces were compelled by circumstances to operate mainly on exterior lines. That is, to move from outside that perimeter of the Confederate States towards some interior point. The Confederacy, defending that territory, could use interior lines to shift forces from one or more less threatened points on their borders to, or, to, the, to the most threatened one. Def to illustrate, in January 1862, Generals Henry W. Halleck and Don Carlos Buell commanded two Union armies in Missouri and Kentucky that Lincoln wanted to cooperate with each other in a joint campaign against Confederate defenses in Kentucky and Tennessee. Both generals stalled and made excuses for their inability to cooperate, and Halleck lectured Lincoln by letter. This is in January 1862. To operate on exterior lines against an enemy occupying a central position will fail, Halleck wrote. It is condemned by every military authority I have ever read. But Lincoln had been reading his own military authorities in a kind of cram course, a cramming effort to learn more military strategy. And his response to Halleck showed how well he had learned a key lesson. I state my general idea of this war, Lincoln wrote, that we have greater numbers, and the enemy has the greater facility of concentrating forces upon points of collision that we must fail unless we find some way of making our advantage an overmatch for his, and that this can only be done by menacing him with superior forces at different points at the same time, concentration in time, so that we can safely attack one or both if he makes no change, and if he weakens one to strengthen the other, forbear to attack the strengthened one, but seize and hold the weakened one, gaining so much. This is one of the clearest expressions of the strategy of concentration in time that I've read. By advancing on two or more fronts simultaneously, Union forces could neutralize the Confederacy's use of interior lines to shift troops from a less to a more endangered front. The proof of Lincoln's point came two years later. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh, the proof of Lincoln's point came in, in 1862 initially when after Grant captured Forts Henry and Fort Donelson in February 1862, Halleck's and Buell's armies then did advance more or less simultaneously and forced the enemy out of Kentucky and out of most of Tennessee. Two years later, when Grant became general-in-chief, he put Lincoln's strategy of simultaneous advances against several enemy points into effect on the major fronts of the war by coordinating, or trying to coordinate, the invasion of key parts of Confederate territory by several armies simultaneously. 
Lincoln told his private secretary, John Hay, in April 1864 that Grant's plans reminded him of his own, this is Hay now directly quoting Lincoln, his own suggestion so constantly made and is constantly neglected to Buell and Halleck et al. to move at once upon the enemy's whole line so as to bring into our action to our advantage our great superiority in numbers. A second key aspect of Lincoln's strategy in Grant's was to go after enemy armies and attack them where they were rather than to maneuver to try to capture places, territory, even such important places as Richmond. This was one reason why Lincoln opposed McClellan's strategy to take the Army of the Potomac all the way down to the, Ch the Chesapeake Bay to the Virginia Peninsula in 1862 to begin a campaign against Richmond from there, 120 miles from Washington, rather than attacking the enemy army where it was in northern Virginia along the Manassas-Centerville line only 25 miles from Washington. In other words, McClellan is trying to go after Confederate territory. Lincoln wants him to go after the Confederate army. When Lincoln reluctantly approved McClellan's plan, despite his continuing skepticism about it, he's still deferring to McClellan's supposedly superior professional military knowledge. And then when McClellan hesitated to attack a small Confederate blocking force at Yorktown, despite overwhelming numerical superiority, Lincoln told him, it is indispensable to you that you strike a blow. You will do me the justice to remember I have always insisted that going down the bay in search of a field instead of fighting at or near Manassas was only shifting and not surmounting a difficulty, that we would find the same or equal entrenchments at either place. The country will not fail to note, is now noting, that the present hesitation to move upon an entrenched enemy is but the story of Manassas repeated. Lincoln then went on to reassure McClellan that he still supported him, but ended the letter with four words which he underlined for emphasis, but you must act. However, the general who acquired the nickname of Tardy George never learned that lesson. Lincoln finally gave up, using a metaphor to describe McClellan, finally gave up trying to bore with an auger too dull to take hold and removed McClellan from command. But he had troubles with some of McClellan's successors. When the Army of Northern Virginia began to move north in the campaign that led to Gettysburg, Union General Joseph Hooker proposed to cut in behind them and attack Richmond. Lincoln rejected that idea. Lee's army, and not Richmond, is your true objective point, he wired Hooker on June 10, 1863. If he comes toward the upper Potomac, follow on his flank and on the inside track, shortening your supply lines while he lengthens his. Fight him when opportunity offers. A week later, as the enemy was entering Pennsylvania, Lincoln told Hooker that this invasion gives you back the chance that I thought McClellan lost last fall in the, in the Antietam campaign to cripple Lee's army far from its home base. Hooker's complaints and bickering with General-in-Chief Halleck finally caused Lincoln to replace Hooker on June 28th with George Gordon Meade, who punished but did not destroy Lee at Gettysburg. When the rising Potomac River from heavy rains trapped Lee in Maryland for 10 days after Gettysburg, Lincoln urged Meade to close in and attack again. 
If Meade could, as Lincoln put it, complete his work so gloriously prosecuted thus far by the literal or substantial destruction of Lee's army, the rebellion will be over. Lincoln was distressed by Meade's congratulatory order to his army on July 4th, the day after the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, which closed with the words that the country now looks to the army for greater efforts to drive from our soil every vestige of the presence of the invader. When Lincoln read these words, he threw up his hands and said, Great God, will our generals never get that idea out of their heads? The whole country is our soil. That, of course, was the point of the war. The war could never be won, as Lincoln thought, merely by driving the enemy back to Virginia, which is what Meade seemed to be talking about, but only, as Lincoln put it, by the literal or substantial destruction of enemy armies. When word came on July 14th that Lee had that night, the preceding night, escaped across the Potomac River without further significant damage, Lincoln was both angry and depressed. He sat down to write a letter to Meade, intending it to be a kind of congratulations for his great victory at Gettysburg, but after a couple of sentences uh, along those lines, it turned into something quite different. My dear General, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, historians might debate that, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, those other late successes were, of course, the capture of Vicksburg with its 30,000 defenders, of Port Hudson lower down the Mississippi River with its 7,000 defenders, and several other advances in Tennessee and Arkansas, would have, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. Well, as Lincoln read over this letter, blotted the ink dry, he realized that he could not send it without provoking Meade's resignation. So he, he filed that letter away unsent. But he never changed his mind about that question. And two months later, when the Army of the Potomac was maneuvering and skirmishing again over the devastated land between Washington and Richmond, the president declared that to attempt to fight the enemy back to his entrenchments in Richmond is an idea I've been trying to repudiate for quite a year. I have constantly desired the Army of the Potomac to make Lee's army, and not Richmond, its objective point. If our army cannot fall upon the enemy and hurt him where he is, it is plain to me it can gain nothing by attempting to follow him over a succession of entrenched lines into a fortified city. Related to this, is uh, another aspect, a related aspect of Lincoln's concept of strategy, and that was to see Confederate offensives uh, as an opportunity rather than as a threat. An opportunity to uh, chop off these Confederate armies when they're raiding or invading northward uh, and, and on, uh, far from their home base. Five times in the war, Lincoln tried to get his field commanders to trap enemy armies that were raiding or invading northward by cutting in behind them, south of them, and blocking any attempt by them, their routes of retreat, forcing them to fight at disadvantage uh, uh, on, on, uh, at the, on the North's own terms. 
Uh, these five times were during Stonewall Jackson's drive north through the Shenandoah Valley in May 1862, Lee's invasion of Maryland in September 1862, which led to the Battle of Antietam, Braxton Bragg's simultaneous invasion of Kentucky in September 1862, of course, Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania in the campaign that led to Gettysburg in June 1863, and finally, Jubal Early's raid with 15,000 Confederate troops all the way to the outskirts of Washington in July 1864. Each time, Lincoln saw these as an opportunity to cut off the enemy army and do him more damage far from home. But each time, his generals failed him. And in most cases, they soon found themselves removed from command. The only one who actually survived that process was Meade after Gettysburg. Uh, he stayed in command of the Army of the Potomac the rest of the war, but of course he was overshadowed by Grant in the war's last year. In all of these cases, the slowness of Union armies trying to intercept or pursue the enemy played a key part in their failures. Lincoln expressed repeated frustration with the inability of his armies to march as light and as fast as the enemy. Union armies were much better supplied than Confederate armies, but they were actually slowed down by the abundance of their logistics, these miles-long wagon trains, supply wagons. Most Union commanders never learned the lesson pronounced by Confederate General Richard Ewell that the road to glory cannot be followed with much baggage. Lincoln's efforts to get his commanders to move faster with fewer supplies brought him into active participation at that fourth level as commander-in-chief that I mentioned at the beginning, that is the operational level of his armies. In May 1862, he sat in the telegraph office in the War Department sending out telegrams to Union armies in Virginia trying to trap uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson and, uh, and for, prevent him from, from getting back after he had raided all the way north to the Potomac River. He, uh, Lincoln directed General Irvin McDowell to put all possible energy and speed into the effort to trap Jackson. It is for you a question of legs. Put in all the speed you can. I have told Fremont as much and directed him to drive at them as fast as possible. But Jackson's troops marched twice as fast as those of Fremont and, and uh, McDowell's lead division under James Shields, and the Confederates slipped through that trap with just hours to spare. Lincoln was disgusted with the excuses offered by Fremont, in particular, for not moving faster. It was raining, the roads were wet, his men were hungry, uh, the supplies didn't keep up, so on and so forth. The same pattern of excuses from Buell during his pursuit of Bragg after the Battle of Perryville in Kentucky in October 1862, and from McClellan after Antietam, deepened Lincoln's disgust. Lincoln told Buell that he could not understand why we cannot march as the enemy marches, live as he lives, and fight as he fights, unless we admit the inferiority of our troops and our generals. Now, Lincoln probably didn't fully appreciate the logistical difficulties of moving large bodies of troops, especially in enemy territory. But on the other hand, he certainly did comprehend a reality expressed by the Army of the Potomac's quartermaster in response to McClellan's insistent, incessant requests 
for more supplies, more of this, more of that, more of everything, before he could advance after Antietam. The quartermaster rather wryly commented, an army will never move if it waits until all the different commanders report that they are ready and want no more supplies. Lincoln told another general in November 1862 that this expanding and piling up of impedimenta has been so far almost our ruin and will be our final ruin if it is not abandoned. You would be better off for not having a thousand wagons doing nothing but hauling forage to feed the animals that draw them and taking at least 2,000 men to care for the wagons and animals who otherwise might be 2,000 good soldiers. Well, with Grant and Sherman in top commands by 1864, Lincoln finally had generals in those top commands who did follow Ewell's dictum about the road to glory and who were willing to demand of their soldiers and of themselves the same exertions and sacrifices that Confederate commanders required of their men. After the Vicksburg campaign, Lincoln said of General Grant, whose rapid mobility and absence of a cumbersome supply line had been a key to the success of that campaign, Lincoln said, Grant is my man and I am his the rest of the war. Maybe one of the reasons for Lincoln's praise was a tongue-in-cheek report that he had received from Elihu Washburn, the congressman from Illinois who was kind of Grant's sponsor and who had traveled with Grant for part of the Vicksburg campaign. I'm afraid Grant will have to be reproved for want of style, Washburn wrote to Lincoln on May 1st, 1863. On this whole march for five days, he has had neither a horse nor an orderly or servant, a blanket or overcoat or clean shirt or even a sword. His entire baggage consists of a toothbrush. Well, to Lincoln, the contrast between these cumbersome supply lines of a McClellan or the headquarters pump of a Fremont could not have been greater. In the end, I think Lincoln put together the three principal functions of commander-in-chief in such a way as to win the war and to give the nation that new birth of freedom that he spoke of at Gettysburg. First, by refusing to compromise his policy of preserving the United States as one nation, indivisible, and after the Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment, also forever free. Second, by a national strategy of mobilizing northern resources and weakening the enemy by destroying its resources as much as possible, including, uh, and most important of all, I think, slavery. And then finally, by putting into place a team of military commanders in the final year of the war, most notably Grant, Philip Sheridan, and George Thomas, who actually did destroy enemy armies, either by capture or by such a devastating attack like Thomas's at Nashville that it more or less wiped out the enemy army. And a fourth commander, William Tecumseh Sherman, who famously destroyed enemy resources. Whether the war could have been won in any other way with anyone other than Lincoln as commander-in-chief is, of course, unknowable. But, frankly, I doubt it. Well, that concludes my formal talk. I'll be glad to uh, address your questions uh, and try to, try to answer them. <laughs>